Good evening. Uh, welcome to Live at Five on Sunday, the 23rd of May, 2021. Uh, my name is Richard, um, but I expect you know that I'm one of the leaders at Kingfisher Church. And as we come this evening, my question is, are you confident? Are you confident? Uh, confidence has been a pretty big issue over this last year. Um, during this pandemic, confidence levels have risen and fallen and uh, various measures have been taken in order to help raise confidence. And one of those has been that we've started to wear face masks and that kind of having that protection has helped us to feel more confident when we're around other people. Uh, it's also uh, face masks have had a kind of unwanted side effect. Uh, the BBC reported last month that shop owners are saying face masks have given thieves increased confidence. Confidence. What does confidence mean for you? Now, when you look at the life around you, um, when you when you kind of go through your week, do you go with confidence? And, and what does it even mean to have confidence? And is it right to be confident? Well, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 28. It will really help you if you have a Bible in front of you to to track as we go through this. Um, but I'm going to pray before I read the passage so that we might seek God's help to understand his word. Our God in heaven, we praise you that you speak in your word, that your word is true and reliable. So please, by your spirit, would you use this passage to draw us on in our relationship with you? Please do good to us in your word. Convict, comfort, and deal with us according to your wisdom as you know best, that you might get all the glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to read for us Proverbs chapter 28, and it begins like this. The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. When a country is rebellious, it has many rulers, but a ruler with discernment and knowledge maintains order. A ruler who oppresses the poor is like driving rain that leaves no crops. Those who forsake instruction praise the wicked, but those who heed it resist them. Evildoers do not understand what is right, but those who seek the Lord understand it fully. Better the poor whose way of life is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. A discerning son heeds instruction, but a companion of gluttons disgraces his father. Whoever increases wealth by taking interest or profit from the poor amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even their prayers are detestable. Whoever leads the upright along an evil path will fall into their own trap, but the blameless will receive a good inheritance. The rich are wise in their own eyes. One who is poor and discerning sees how deluded they are. When the righteous triumph, there is great elation, but when the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a helpless people. A tyrannical ruler practices extortion, but one who hates ill-gotten gain will enjoy a long reign. Anyone tormented by the guilt of murder will seek refuge in the grave. Let no one hold them back. The one whose way of life is blameless is kept safe, but the one whose ways are perverse will fall into the pit. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. 
A faithful person will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. To show partiality is not good, yet a person will do wrong for a piece of bread. The stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. Whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favour rather than the one who has a flattering tongue. Whoever robs their father or mother and says, it's not wrong, is partner to one who destroys. The greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust the Lord will prosper. Those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. Those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. When the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. But when the wicked perish, the righteous thrive. Proverbs chapter 28. Let's look at verse one. Verse one speaks about confidence and it really is the kind of gateway into this passage. Uh, the, the first half of verse one is written as a riddle. The answer in the, in the original is held back uh, to the end of the first half of the verse. Literally, it says they flee and there is no one chasing. And we're given this moment to wonder who might that be, who behaves in this manner. Well, you know, you see it all the time, don't you? see it all the time see back in the back in the 1960s um nobody went running went jogging um if you did uh, you could get arrested i was reading an article about it this week um and, and actually when, when people started to take up jogging uh, that they would advise each other to only do it in the morning because running in the evening looks suspicious uh, it's all gone though isn't it because now everybody runs everybody runs and no one's chasing them it's madness who runs when no one's chasing them everybody um but Proverbs 28 verse 1 says the answer is the wicked. Now, this isn't talking about getting a bit of exercise. This is somebody whose life is caught in the grip of instability and uncertainty. And the contrast in the second half of the verse is the righteous. They are as bold as a lion, confident as a lion. And the righteous are imbibed with this deep confidence. Think about that image to be as confident as a lion. The lion is not called the king of beasts for nothing. And so we have this invitation then in this passage to be lion confident, to be bold and to stand tall and to be firm and to be courageous. Now, that's the invitation of the passage. But if we're going to hear it, we have to see how the passage builds it up. Now, Proverbs chapter 28 and 29 have been very carefully put together. And, and, and over these two chapters, there are these kind of um, seams in the text um, the, the kind of text is broken up and it's marked out by verses which contrast the wicked and the righteous. So, so verse one is, is like that, contrast the wicked and the righteous. Then again in verse 12, again in verse 28, and then again in verse chapter 29, verse 2, 7, 16 and 27. But that's next week. Um, in, in our passage, we have verse one, halfway through verse 12, and then verse 28 at the end. You see, when verse one says the wicked flee, though no one pursues, it's, it's not simply making an observation. This is, is the outcome of a life that has refused to trust the Lord. A verse one is building on what was said way back in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26 verses 14 to 17 is a passage where the Lord is urging his people into covenant faithfulness. And he says to them as a warning. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, 
And if you reject my decrees and abhor my commands and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant. The Lord is saying, if you reject me, if, if you refuse to live in my loving kindness, if you push yourself away from my care, if you violate my covenant. Now, that, that is, if they break themselves off from their relationship with the Lord, refusing to love God and love neighbor, how will God deal with that sin? One of the things he says there in Leviticus 26 is he says, I will set my face against you. You will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If they shut God out of their lives, they will be without hope in the world. They will be riddled with uncertainty and instability. If they shut God out of their lives, then ultimately they will get just that. They will be cut off forever from the one who is all life and life. And this contrast between the wicked and the righteous in our passage holds it together. It comes up again in verse 12 and then verse 28. And those verses show that a world dominated by that kind of wickedness is a terrible place to live. At verse 12, when the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. Verse 28, when the wicked rise to power, the people go into hiding. But when the wicked perish, the righteous thrive. And the wicked will perish. That's what Leviticus is indicating. And our passage indicates it as well, that the way of wickedness brings a short term gain. But in the end, there will be a fall and the fall will be final. And when that happens, when the wicked perish, the righteous will thrive. Verse 12, when the righteous triumph, there is great elation that the righteous are going to overcome. And when they do, there'll be this elation, literally this splendor, this glory. See, this is the kind of confidence of the righteous. The confidence of the righteous is that the end is glorious. The the, the confidence of the righteous is that there is this great tomorrow, a weeping for the night, but joy in the morning. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, says Christ, for I have overcome the world. The, The confidence of the righteous is the confidence that one day they will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The invitation in this passage is to do life with that lion-like confidence. And, and, And this invitation is one we've got to work so hard that we don't mishear it. The invitation is to have this lion like confidence, but but we can mishear it. First of all, we can mishear it like this. See, having lion like confidence does not mean life becomes easy. The confident believer is not courageous because there is nothing to worry about. The confident, righteous believer is confident in the face of loads of things that can shake them and break them into pieces. See, this image is to be as confident as a lion. It's not to be as confident as a goldfish. Now, a goldfish doesn't need to be confident because they are because it's safe. It swims around in its tank, immune from all the pressures and pressures and difficulties of the world. But a lion is not like that. A lion is not immune that the lion faces all kinds of adversity. And so do we. In fact, this passage itself describes oppression, famine, poverty, sin, personal sin. Murder, terrible tyrants, injustice, lies, deception, it's all here. The, the righteous person is not, is not confident because these things have been taken away. 
the righteous person is confident in the midst of all the mess and all the misery of life. See, as we go through this passage, we need to be asking ourselves, am I confident? But, but, but as we ask that question, we're not saying, is there anything bad in our lives? What, what we're asking as we ask whether we are confident is, can we look at the most awful things in the world? And can we look at the darkest things in our own hearts? And can we look at all the, the tangle of sorrow that strangles our sanity? Can we take it all in and stand firm and stand courageous and as confident as a lion? The second thing we have to think about so that we don't mishear it is that being confident as a lion does not mean that you become a lion. A lion has confidence because it's this beast packed with muscle. Every part of it is designed to be the, the master predator. And the invitation is to lion-like confidence, not to be a lion. You see, as we come into the passage, we've got to think, where does this confidence come from? Where does it come from? Remember those kind of scenes in this passage, the wicked and righteous verses. Well, that gives our passage two parts, the first part, the second part. And each of those two parts shows us one thing that produces this confidence in us. So, So what produces this confidence? Well, first of all, in verses 1 to 12, what produces this confidence is submission to the Lord's instruction. Submission to the Lord's instruction. Work with me with this. Verse 2 describes a rebellious country. There's fragile leadership. And then as a contrast, um, the the answer is a ruler with discernment and knowledge. The, the, the answer is discernment. That's what is needed. Without this discernment, verse three tells of a terrible situation. It tells about the poor being oppressed. Food is scarce. How do you avoid it? You've got to get discernment. But where does the discernment come from? And verse five speaks about evildoers, like those who've just been described in the previous verses. That these evildoers do not understand what is right. Now, in verse five, that word understand is the same word that's translated discernment earlier on. Without discernment, life doesn't work. Without discernment, there is evil, there is oppression. The whole of society gets corrupted. So where does this discernment, this understanding come from? Well, verse five says, those who seek the Lord understand it fully. Seeking the Lord Seeking the Lord to make sense of life, to hold life together, to find life in the Lord. Seek the Lord for this understanding. How do we do that, though? How do we seek the Lord for this understanding? To verse seven. A discerning son heeds instruction. That word discerning is the same as the word understanding. It's a link word in these verses. Ties them all together. And and the instruction there in verse seven is the word Torah. Torah. See, we we seek the Lord in heeding his instruction. Understanding comes from heeding the instruction of the Lord. And you see how important it is in verse nine. If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even their prayers are detestable. See, these, these, these proverbs before us are urging to seek the Lord in his instruction. But if the revelation of God is set to one side... 
that then there will be no knowing of him. There will be no access to him. And verse nine describes this person who prays, a religious looking person who prays and sings and goes to church and does lots of Christian things, but they ignore what God says in the Bible. And the proverb says those prayers aren't just pointless, they're detestable. It's the height of arrogance for somebody to claim that they can talk to God in prayer and yet refuse to listen to him in his word. See, how does this submission to the Lord's instruction that's being impressed on us, how does this submission to the Lord's instruction produce lion-like confidence? Well, the way that it does it, it does it by denying us the thought that we are lions. We are not lions. Verse 11. The rich are wise in their own eyes. The rich, those who have, those whose hands are full. And they are prone to think their prosperity is from themselves. Verse 11. They are wise in their own eyes. They, they make an assessment of themselves based on what they have and they give themselves good marks for it. But this is what we see throughout history. We see it in the Bible. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He looked out over his great kingdom and he said, is this not the, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? There he was looking at it all and saying, I've done it. Wise in his own eyes. And the Lord in mercy humbled him. It's the warning that was given to the children of Israel as they were on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy 8. And, and the warning says, when you enter the land and you are enjoying a time of prosperity and comfort, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Is it this danger that comes from having anything in this life? The danger is we think that we have earned it for ourselves and we say to ourselves, my power has produced it. And this self-confidence, look at verse 11, the second half points out this self-confidence is a delusion. It's what Nebuchadnezzar discovered, that he had nothing apart from what the Lord had given. It's what the children of Israel must learn, that they would have no strength to achieve anything apart from what the Lord gave to them. So they must have a confidence not in themselves. Self-confidence will always be a delusion. But how do we get to... Um, unpack this delusion how do we get to expose this delusion verse 11 says one who is poor and discerning sees how deluded they are discerning is that key link word again where does discernment come from seeking the lord by submitting to his word and why the poor mentioned in verse 11 here's one of the really practical outworkings of all of this for us in verse six look at verse six there's better the poor whose way of life is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse see verse six i think is showing what where lion-like confidence will place us see when we refuse to put confidence in ourselves and we put all our confidence in the lord it means we can have the confidence to be poor better the poor says because it you know what what happens when when submission to the lord's instruction means that we lose something it's, it's always going to happen now jesus said we have to count the cost 
Uh, obedience to the Lord will mean in various ways and at various times we will be poor. We will have less. It could be poor in financial terms. Uh, the Lord instructs us to share what we have with others, to with give with gladness because of the gospel. It could be poor in relationship terms. The Lord instructs us that we are not to do what the world tells us about our relationships. So that could mean for some of us not entering a relationship we would want to. For others of us, it might mean sticking in a relationship that we don't want to be. And for husbands, it will mean laying down your interests, your own interests for the sake of your wife. And for wives, it will mean submitting to your own husband. All loss. It could be being poor socially, accepting ridicule from unbelievers or rejection because we're seeking obedience to the Lord. It could be becoming poor time-wise as we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness rather than our kingdom and our comforts. It could be being poor in the way that the world defines happiness. And Moses is a great example of this, who, who refused the pleasures of Egypt for the reproaches of Christ. Verse 6 says, better the poor whose way of life is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. Better the poor. See, this, this is where lion-like confidence places us. It gives us a confidence to be poor, a confidence to lose, a confidence to empty our hands rather than to fill them, a confidence for us to give rather than to take, the confidence for us to lack. What produces it? What's the energy that fuels that confidence? Well, it's not looking at ourselves, not being wise in our own eyes, not mustering the resources within no, it comes from seeking the Lord by submitting to his word. Why? Because the righteous trust that the Lord knows best. The, the righteous trust that with him, the end is glorious. And so if, if he leads us today into lack, we would rather be poor with him than to be rich alone. If he takes away, we will trust him. How can we have lion-like confidence? Lion-like confidence to look at adversity and face it and stand up, to face poverty. Well, this first section is encouraging us to find it by submission to the Lord's instruction. And we can't claim to trust the Lord and not be interested in what he says. We can't claim to seek the Lord in verse four and forsake his instruction. So we have to ask ourselves, what is our appetite? What is your appetite for God's word? What's your appetite for reading the Bible, for wrestling with the scriptures, for wrestling with your heart to submit to what the Bible says? Are you aware of the ways that you're prone to resist the Bible or neglect putting it into practice? And many years ago, I was struck by a little passage in a book by a guy called John White. The book was called The Fight. And he writes this. He, he writes, Bible study has long torn apart my life and remade it. That is to say, God, through his word, has done so. And he recalls various ways of his kind of just daily wrestling with the Bible. And then he says this. I looked for no immediate answers to my problems. Only did I sense intuitively that I was drinking drafts from a fountain that gave life to my soul. What did he find? Well, we'll listen to how he records his lion-like confidence. He writes, he found the wonder of finding that I, a neurotic, unstable, middle-aged man, 
have my feet firmly planted in eternity and breathe the air of heaven. And all this has come to me through a careful study of scripture. Not being confident in himself, not being wise in his own eyes, but thoroughly being thoroughly, deeply God confident and standing firm against all that life throws at him, having that lion like confidence. <coughs> what produces this confidence? Well, the second half of our passage, verses 13 to 28, what produces this confidence is by standing in the Lord's grace, standing in the Lord's grace. Let's go back to the gateway into the whole passage. Verse one. The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Which half of that verse do you most identify with? I hope we want to identify with the second half. We want to be the righteous who are as bold as a lion. But does it feel like that? Doesn't it feel a bit, a bit too much to claim that that is what we are? And in verse one, it says this confidence is for the righteous. And, and verse six that we've looked at speaks about a way of life that is called blameless. And, and, and don't those things just begin to kind of puncture any confidence that we have? Because when we look at our own lives, would we jump at the word blameless to describe ourselves? Probably not. And, and you see, when the kind of first section of a passage we've looked at, it speaks about being righteous, seeking the Lord understanding well that just gets undone when we come to the new testament and we read in romans 3 there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks god now how can we be confident when our hearts are spewing out sin the whole of our lives demands from the justice of god that we find god's face against us And we find ourselves without hope and without God in the world and our future is destruction. How can we have any confidence? Well, come and look at the preciousness of verse 13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Here is the heartbeat of lion-like confidence the the mechanism that ensures that you and I, with all of our history, with hearts like ours, each of us with a kind of overwhelming debt of sin, this is how we can roar with the boldness of a lion and stand up in full confidence. Look look at verse 13 carefully. It gives this this, um, basic reality for all of us, everybody. uh, The problem that we all have is named very simply as sin, personal sin, their sins we've got these sins and they belong to us that's the problem and the unavoidable reality of this problem that we all have is that we cannot prosper we we cannot succeed we cannot have hope we cannot have what verse 12 speaks about of the triumph and the elation and the glory the end is lost let's not rush this verse 13 but The one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. 
in Psalm 32, David riffs on this idea. His words put it better than I could, of course. He writes, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then in that psalm, David celebrates the confidence that flows from this forgiveness of sins. He wrote, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Look into verse 13. But verse 13 doesn't say one thing about the amount of sin. It doesn't say anything about the grossness or the grotesqueness or the, the kind of ugliness of the sin. That there isn't a kind of a limit to the awfulness of sin. See, that all that is needed to trigger mercy is confession. There isn't a sin that can be confessed that will not be met with mercy. See, verse 13, it flows directly from the very nature of God, the character of God, who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. See, without verse 13, any confidence we have just crumbles in our hands. Without this mercy, any confidence we have is just a temporary delusion. It's a trick. If we're going to partake in lion-like confidence, we need to know there is mercy enough for all our sin. So let's just do it. Let's take hold of this promise in verse 13. The one who confesses and renounces their sins finds mercy. This promise is cemented to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, in 1 John, it says when we confess our sin, we will find mercy because when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The mercy of God is not an empty sentiment. The mercy of God is a blood-bought gift because when we sin, in the, the moment that we sin, we have this advocate. We have this one who pleads our cause. One who has already taken our sin on his shoulder and answered for it in his death. In Christ, the father has loaded such an abundance of mercy that it would cover our sins for a thousand lifetimes and more. There is mercy in Christ. There is mercy that he's eager to dispense. Mercy that he has designed perfectly for you. So confess, renounce your sin. Every day, let us pray, Father in heaven, forgive us our sins. Let's pray and he will, he will forgive you, will find mercy. You see, it's only, it's only sin that can shut us out from glory. Only sin, suffering cannot. Weakness cannot shut us out from glory. Our, our circumstances cannot close the door of heaven. It's only sin that can close the door of heaven. But when sin meets mercy, there is no more to answer. And we find there is Christ alongside us banging on the door, on the door of heaven. We find that we have the king of glory himself demanding that we, that you be let in. And all of heaven will rejoice when sinners like us, drenched in the mercy of God, will go to the throne of grace and we will lay down our crowns and we will join the throng singing, worthy, worthy, 
You were slain and with your blood you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. What produces lion-like confidence? Standing in the Lord's grace. Standing in the mercies of Christ, knowing that there is nothing now that can separate us from his love. Nothing now can bar us from all glory. Nothing in all creation. Don't let us avoid this. Don't don't let us skip over verse 13. The concepts are perhaps so familiar for us. So come again to verse 13. Notice it says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. Whoever conceals, how might we do that? That's the practical question. How might we day to day conceal our sin? Come to verse 14. Second half of verse 14. Whoever hardens their hearts falls to trouble. All the mercies of God are laid out for us in Christ, laid out to melt our hearts and draw us into his embrace. But if we harden our hearts, we will fall. If we harden our hearts, we will conceal our sin, we will fall. How might we do that? How might we day to day be hardening our hearts? Let's have a look. Verses 15 to 18 raise a number of cases where people attack others. We've got those who are in power, who oppress. We have murderers. You know, we can attempt to conceal our sin by attacking others. We do it in all kinds of ways. We can do it by blaming others for our sin. Or we start to say things like, well, I might have lashed out in anger, but it's not really my fault. You, You wouldn't be blaming me if you knew what they had done. So we start to say to ourselves, well, I might have done something wrong, but it's, It's really because of how other people have treated me. It's not really my fault. It's because of them. And we 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 pull the covers to conceal our sin. We 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 do it by attacking others. We say it's not really my sin because it's not as bad as them. They are to blame for me. And the end result is we fail to confess our sin. We attack others. And if we conceal rather than confess, we won't find mercy. How might we harden our hearts? Verse 19 says, those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. Take it on its own. This is just a proverb about diligent work. But on the back of verse 13, it challenges us to be diligent in our confession of sin and not to conceal sin by chasing fantasies. Uh, We can do this whenever we reach for a solution that God hasn't provided. When we say to ourselves, I like to think of God as a, as a, as a, as a lovely, kind, like this great one who, who wouldn't punish sin. I don't like to think of Jesus's death as sin bearing. It's a bit too horrible. I don't like to think about, about punishment and, and things like that. It's chasing fantasies. There's no mercy on the road of fantasies. We can do it when we when we take it on ourselves to decide what sin is and what sin isn't, rather than humbly accepting what God says, we can harden our hearts by chasing fantasies. How might we harden our hearts? Verse 20 speaks about those who are eager to get rich. Warns against it. Again, verse 22 uh, warns against the stingy who are eager to get rich. This attitude is kind of an agitation for gain, prepared to do whatever it takes to get. 
verse 20 speaks about being prepared to be unfaithful to get verse 22 prepared to be stingy not being generous it's a kind of a fidgety approach to life it's always trying to maximize personal comforts on your own terms always saying how can i keep control of my assets how can i manipulate this situation to bring the best for me how can i get what i want now well how does that attitude that greedy hasty attitude do what does it do when it faces the problem of personal sin and so we'll see this greediness the key to it is prizing immediate happiness above everything else so the heart gets hardened because unless the sin is causing me an immediate problem i'm not going to be bothered about it there's not going to be a need to go through that process of confessing sin and seeking mercy if all the benefit is in the future there's no point of turning away from sin if it's bringing me pleasure today in fact if my sin makes me happy today i'm going to indulge myself in it why would i hold myself back i'll put it a bit bluntly perhaps but the the reality is that our hearts often deceive us we've got to ask ourselves what is it that decides the way that we go If, if we're faced with this choice of kind of sitting in and enjoying the pleasures of sin or the painful process of admitting and confessing and renouncing our sin, which which way do we decide? What what, what helps us to move in that in that decision? Now, isn't it the case that so often we decide on the basis of immediate comfort? So the other night, um, one of my children was was disturbed in the night. They couldn't sleep, and they kept on coming in. And, and after a number of times of being woken, I I just lost my temper. I spoke and a harsh and unkind way. And then I sat on my bed and I was caught in this dilemma. Now, do I just get under my cover and go to sleep? Like immediate happiness. Or do I go and deal with this sin that I've done? And that would mean I have to be disturbed for longer. The, the greedy heart will conceal sin rather than confessing because it grasps for immediate comfort. See, so it's always going to be a matter of the heart. Look at verse 25. It again addresses this greediness, the greedy stir up conflict. But then it gives us an alternative. But those who trust the Lord will prosper. And literally, they will be fat. Uh, They'll be fat with good things. They'll be abundantly supplied. Those Those who grasp for immediate gain, whatever it takes, they will fall flat. But those who wait, those who trust the Lord, those who committed to the Lord, they will find he supplies more than they can imagine. And then verse 26 opens up the heart of the greedy person. Those who trust in themselves, literally those who trust their own hearts. They're fools. See, we have here in verse 25 and 26, the key to lying like confidence. The, the, The key dilemma of confidence is trust the Lord or trust your own heart. For those who trust the Lord, verse 26, they're kept safe. They are saved. Those who trust the Lord, they're saved by faith. They're saved by faith alone. Those who trust the Lord don't dare to conceal their sin, but they do dare to confess boldly, knowing that with the Lord there is an abundance of mercy and they will be saved. So they who stand in the Lord's grace go through life with lion-like confidence. This is the invitation of our passage. 
The, the invitation is to be lion confident. It's to be bold. It's to stand tall and firm and be courageous. The, the, the warning of this passage is not to be self-confident, not to be wise in our own eyes, not to trust our own hearts, not to be self-confident, but be God-confident. One, one commentator on this said, the boldness itself is a sense of weakness and divine strength made perfect in it. Thus, pride receives its death blow. Lion-like confidence. It's not about being bolshy and brash. It's definitely not thinking we can manage it and fix it by ourselves. It's, it's never going to be a call for us to fight alone. This lion-like confidence is realizing our weakness admitting our waywardness and then it's a shifting of the whole of our expectation for any good away from ourselves and putting it all on the shoulders of the one who carried our cross who died our death who was raised for our life and ever lives to intercede for us how do we grow in such confidence we go to the word of god and we submit to all he says and we go to the grace of God. Hebrews chapter four says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, please, would you show to us again the mercies of Christ, the strength of Christ, the advocacy and intercession of Christ for us and may we load all of our confidence onto him give us boldness to confess our sin boldness to confess our weakness boldness to stand up in the Lord Jesus Christ please teach us his ways help us to submit to your word and stand up in your grace amen Amen. That's us done. Apologies for being a few minutes longer, perhaps, than anticipated. And next week, we're going to have a little break from Live at Five. We have a special evening uh, joined with St. Nancy Evangelical Church in Christchurch, Camborne. Um, promises to be a good evening. Look out for details of that in the week. And then the week after, we will, we'll be returning to Proverbs. We're nearly at the end. And just a few more sessions to get to the end of this book. May God bless you. Good night.